Have you ever become completely desensitized to a song because you heard it played over and over and over? Anybody, raise your hand if you have ever gotten sick of a song because it was played again and again and again and again. Okay. All right. I see those at home, too. All right. Um, here's, one that, here's one that went that way for me. Okay. Here's a song of which I became very sick. Here with the song Believer, Imagine Dragons. <laughs> Don't, please don't. All right. Um, it's, it's a bit trite. It is a catchy song, uh, and it was played all the time. I got so sick of Believer by Imagine Dragons. Now, I shared that example because it contains an even more important problem. Like whole songs, individual words can sometimes get overused and misused. They, they can get so overused, they have no understandable meaning anymore. And one of the most misused words of our time appears in that song, Believer by Imagine Dragons, and that word is grace. Alexander Grant and Dan Reynolds wrote this clause into their song, Believer, by the grace of the fire and the flames. Now, now grace is a really important word, but that makes no sense at all. Absolutely not. It only waters the meaning down into not... I should say it this way. It inflames the meaning until it burns up into nonsense, right? Now, I'm not picking on Imagine Dragons, although that has become a popular sport. I just want us to stop and think. Just as good songs can be ruined by overplay, so great terms can become worthless because of misuse. And grace has become a kind of power word in our time that, that is used for so many inaccurate meanings. Women's author Joy Trimby, she, uh, she wrote this recently. She said, grace is often spoken by people who really mean patience, as in give your toddlers grace when they slow you down, close quote. You're not giving them grace, you're giving patience, which is fine, but don't call it grace. Christians will, will pray and call it grace, a kind of benediction or invocation, even if the meaning of the term grace is not at all what they mean. There, there are hundreds of examples, and this is nothing new. Way back in the Middle Ages, grace became a, a title that was used of some Sufi Islam leaders and Roman Catholic archbishops and Greek Orthodox bishops. People would say, your grace to them. None of those uses is accurate. And over two millennia, overuse and misuse have watered down the meaning of this very important word, grace. So here's what we're going to do. Today, you and I are going to recapture and be changed by the real meaning of grace. As you'll see in your notes, um, they're on the screen. You should have a place if you're studying with us elsewhere. So glad to be with you. If you would uh, pull up the notes there, you can get them, download them. Uh, you guys have a bulletin you got when you came in. Look inside there, and you'll see this sentence, haris, grace, was a really important word even before the New Testament was written. It was originally pronounced haris. We would say charis. Uh, like most words, it had multiple uses. Um, Haris was used as a typical greeting term, kind of like our hello, Haris, you would say, uh, hello, and it had other uses as well. But, but Haris had one very, very particular uh, employment. It was, it was used of something that was really, really joyful, exciting, something unexpectedly wonderful. By the time Jesus was born, Haris had become a really significant term in the Greco-Roman world of thought. If we'll take a quick survey, I want you to join me for a quick survey of the major uses of haris, because I don't think we can understand the New Testament use of this word unless we understand where it came from. 
All right, so let's start way, way back to when Haris was first coined, way back to the mystery religions of Greece. Okay, we're going, we're going back here three millennia, all right? The, the mystery religions of Greece used the term Haris of this. They used it of a rejoicing in Hades when light appeared. Um, the, the mystery religions used Haris in both a symbolic and a physical means. The, mo- the most, um, most famous example is Demeter. Demeter was the goddess of growing things, right? Her daughter Persephone, kidnapped by Hades, taken to hell, lived in complete darkness. And then every spring, she was allowed for six months of the year to release her daughter Persephone. When she did, she was happy and things would grow again. That was spring. When Demeter had her light penetrate Hades, the word used in all of the texts we have, the word used to Persephone was haris, because she had joy when she saw the light again, Okay. This joy response of Persephone was described with Haris. Now, listen to this. This is very important. Haris, at this point, was only for gods and goddesses. Grace was never for human beings. No human could ever experience grace. It was only for gods. Uh, Modern paganism, uh, like like Wicca-type religions, they're very untrue to their roots here. Um, You'll hear modern Wiccans speak of grace as an experience of people. That's anathema. To, to genuine mystery paganism. Uh, it is not for people. Now, later, Greek mythology developed a concept of, of three goddesses called the charities, the harites. Uh, words tell stories, right? And the names of these charities tell us a lot about the, the growing understanding of haris, of grace. The first sister went by two different names, depending on what time period you're talking about. She was called either Aglaia or Orchale. Uh, brightness, splendor, or beauty. Uh, sister number two was uh, Euphrosine, and uh, that would be joyfulness. And the third sister was Thalia. Thalia is blooming or luxuriant. Um, they always appeared together. And this gives us a, a good feel for the development of the term haris. It includes brightness, joyfulness, beautiful blooming. And get this about the charities. Humans needed to act in a certain way in order to receive blessings from the charities. This is really significant. Grace was not given to all. It was very, very limited. Only those very few people who pleased the charities were, were said to experience bright beauty, joyfulness, blooming. Now, <clears throat> a later Roman religious group called the Stoics took this idea of earning grace even further. They considered, this is really, this is really interesting, they considered haris a negative term. It was considered an emotional perversion of the idea of logos. Uh, There was a Roman senator named Seneca. He was a very famous Stoic. He wrote with disdain of haris. He said the very thought of haris, of grace, is an offense against nature. Logos, the, the, the logic behind all things. Logos says there can never be such a thing as grace. Um, in your notes, you'll see my attempt to try and summarize his argument against grace. Uh, This is from my rendition of Seneca the Younger's De Providentia. Grace is a sentimental lie. Reality requires reciprocal action, alternately giving and receiving. There is some societal usefulness in the greater giving to the weaker, but in exchange, the weaker are to act as good citizens. No one, says Seneca, certainly no God, ever gives without strings attached. Close quote. This, This... This background matters for our understanding. Let me give you one more, one more. In the years just before the first Christmas, Alexandrian Jewish scholars began to examine this intriguing idea of haris. Um, 
here, here's what that means. There was, there was a city called Alexandria at a famous library and lighthouse. It was the great learning center of the world. And there was an entire section of Alexandria, a Greco city in the far north of Egypt, um, entire area that was a, this amazing Jewish quarter, this place of, of incredible learning and giving and taking and, and just really, really remarkable hotbed of thought. Thinkers there like, uh, like Philo of Alexandria and others, they considered haris, and here's what they came up with. They said haris is the opposite of works. The way they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek is really telling. For example, there's a Hebrew word hanan. Hanan means to, to bend. Okay, originally the word just meant to bend. But Hanan came to be used of somebody condescending and freely offering something without expecting any return at all. All right? And guess how they translated that? When they translated the Old Testament into Greek, the language of their day, they used haris. They used grace for that. That was a, that was a, that was a total disagreement with the Stoics. And, and then, and then look, look up here at the slide. They used haris as a contrast term. Whenever they want to describe the opposite of works or, or earning something, the, the Greek word erwan, ergon, um, whenever they want to describe the opposite of that, they used haris. And in their commentaries, these Jews wrote that haris is best summarized in the gracious surprise of Isaac, the child born to Abraham and Sarah. Isaac means, anybody know what Isaac means? Isaac means what? Laughter. Yeah, it means laughter. He's the ultimate gift. He's contrasted with the child of works, Ishmael. Ishmael represents Aragon, doing, doing works to fulfill God's will. Isaac represents Haris, grace received from God alone. And by the way, in their commentaries as they talked about the Old Testament, they said there's one point where the Old Testament might seem to be agreeing with the Stoics, uh, with those pagans that said you've got to earn grace and it's not right. It's that, it's that fateful moment in the Old Testament when Abraham is, is asked to give back, to sacrifice back his son Isaac, the son of promise. But they pointed out, at the moment that Abraham's called to give back his son, God actually is the one who sacrifices. God condescends and he provides. He gives Abraham the ram caught in the thicket. Just at the point when Abram and Isaac might be about to sacrifice, God says, no, 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 let me give another unearned gift instead. Abraham is made righteous by trust, by accepting God's grace, not by his own works, his own actions. Now, with all that background, open your Bible to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, incredible description here, shows Haris as no one had ever done before. Using everything that came before, you'll see why we had to go through all that. Using everything that came before, John details how grace came to humanity. Not to just some, not, not to those who earned it, to all. John chapter 1, start in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, <coughs> and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, 
He gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born, not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him and exclaimed, This is the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because He existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from His fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As we point out on the right side of your notes, the right side of our notes, Jesus, the Logos, created all. That's the big idea in verses 1 through 3. The Stoics were wrong. Verses 1 through 3 here is a shot across the Stoic bow. John looks at the very popular idea of Stoicism and says, ah, you're wrong. All right? You're, you're wrong. Charis is not a perversion of Logos. In fact, it's the natural outcome of it. Far from a distortion, grace is actually logical. Look, look at this is brilliant. Look, look at verse 1. Jesus is the Logos, right? He is the living word that gives life meaning. Um, Logos is a, is a really, really important idea. It means word. That's, that's what it means. But, it, but it's more than just word. Logos is, is word that has meaning. It's the truth that undergirds everything, that gives all words their meaning. Jesus is that Logos. He is the logic of all. Now, look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, He is full of what, everybody? Grace and truth. Aha, they're not incompatible, Seneca. You're wrong. Charis and truth are part of logic. Further, look at verse 17. He declares that he gives grace and truth. Jesus, the Logos, gives charis and truth. This is the vast difference between the Bible and all other thought systems. In Scripture, charis is a natural good. It is unearned favor that flows from connection to Jesus. In human thought, that's not the case. In human thought, grace is either not for people, it is a perversion, or it is something to be earned. One of my favorite regular correspondents, person who writes me, is a woman we'll call uh, Virginia. She's one of the atheists who listens very faithfully uh, to me teach Scripture on our podcast. And we, I, I praise God for these folks, and I love interacting with them. I can always tell when I am getting closest to sharing the biblical idea of grace and truth. Because when I'm getting close, that's when Virginia will fire off a vituperative letter to me. Um, her hate mail is always entertaining. It's, it's really fascinating. But it gets frothy with angry spittle and lots of nasty words when the logic of grace is revealed. She's like a modern-day Seneca. Virginia gets livid over the idea that God in whom she supposedly doesn't believe, would bestow haris. It makes her so angry. By the way, I fear for your blood pressure as you watch this lesson, Virginia. Let me just speak to you for just a second. Take a breath, okay? The Word of God has grace for us, even though you and I don't deserve it. Stop fighting the logic of grace and receive it instead. All God's people said... Now, remember the earliest use of haris. The earliest use was the light penetrating Hades, Right? Well, look at what John addresses next. Go, go to verses, read 4 through 9 again. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, the true light that gives light to whom, everybody? Everyone. 
was coming into the world. The parallel to the Greek mystery religion language is employed on purpose. This is on John is not saying Christianity is a mystery religion. That's, that's absurd. He's declaring that life on earth is a dark hell without Jesus. In, in beautiful poetry that alludes both to the ancient Greek myths and to the real events outside Bethlehem, John is saying that life on earth is hell without Jesus. When John Freeman Young translated the hymn Silent Night into English, he had John chapter 1 in mind. Um, I, don't, I don't know if any of you know German, but in the, in the, original, the original writing of Stille Nacht um, in, in German, it doesn't mention light at all. Okay? It, it's all the rhyme in, in German is based on sound. It's all about sound on this silent night. But when it got translated into English, John Young uh, used light as the image that he played off of. So, so just read with me. Here's, um, here's two of the verses from Silent Night. Look, look at all the light image here. Read with me. Silent night, holy night. Shepherds quake at the sight. Glories stream from heaven afar. Heavenly hosts sing alleluia. Christ the Savior is born. Silent night, holy night. Son of God loves pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Look at that. Glories, radiant beams, dawn. It's light. With that in mind, my friend Karis is going to light. Isn't that perfectly appropriate? My friend Karis is going to light the third candle of our Advent season. This is the candle of grace. As the candle's lit, I'd like you to look up here at this list. A pastor friend of mine, uh, this is really brilliant. He gathered a bunch of biblical references about the, the way Scripture shows the, the light of true grace versus darkness. Look at, look at this. Darkness in the Scripture, you can see this in Colossians 1 and Psalm 107 and other places. Darkness is presented as something that is detrimental, a dominion from which we need to be rescued. Darkness is aligned with the kingdom of Satan. God, says 1 John 1, is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. All humans live in darkness. That's a natural effect of our fall. You can see that in Ephesians 5 and hundreds of other texts. Um, and people are only rescued from darkness by God. Only Jesus moves people from darkness to light. Now, Jesus comments this. In John chapter 3, He says, men love darkness rather than light, presumably because the darkness, we think, hides our sins. Here's more of what Scripture says about the true light of grace versus darkness. The fact that men who lived in darkness would see a great light, that is Jesus, was prophesied by Isaiah uh, and Psalms like Psalm 112. Jesus' light, as we just read, shines in the darkness, but the darkness doesn't comprehend it. Ephesians chapter 5, Romans 13, a bunch of other places tell us that Christians are called not to participate in the acts of darkness. Instead, we are supposed to expose them. And Christians should avoid bonding with nonbelievers as light has no fellowship with darkness. What does grace really mean? It is found in Jesus, the light of the world, the Word of God who brings light to earth. All God's people said... And those who believe in Him live differently because they are reborn as God's children. Go back to verse 10. <clears throat> he was in the world, and the world was created through Him, and yet the world did not recognize Him. He came to His own. His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, He gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born, not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. 
Those who believe in Jesus live differently because they are reborn as God's children. Remember Philo and, and the, the Alexandrians? They were on to something, right? Isaac, laughter. That's akin to Haris. Those who accept Haris become members of God's family of promise. And just as God provided the perfect sacrifice for Isaac, so He has done for us. Christian writer Michael Card summarized this so beautifully. He wrote, God has provided a lamb. He was offered up in your place. What Abraham was asked to do, God has done. He offered His only Son. Jesus, God the Son, is that offering, that sacrifice. He is the perfect Lamb of God who pays the price for human sin. John the Baptizer, the one we read about in verses 6 through 8, he, he, he exclaimed exactly that. When he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We cannot, we do not earn our own justification. Listen, we cannot become right with God through our own efforts. It is only by Jesus that we can be saved. And this brings up a really important aspect of grace. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 cryptically says the people did not receive Jesus. Well, in the rest of the gospel, we learn what that really means. They killed him. They killed him. And that was exactly his plan. Jesus died on the cross and then rose from the grave precisely to pay the price of grace. The Alexandrians were the first to use this contrast in the Greek. Charis versus ergon. Grace versus works. And they were correct. Remember how they commented on, on Abraham's salvation that it came by grace and not by works? Look at how the Apostle Paul expanded on that. Uh, Romans chapter 4. For what does the Scripture say? And here Paul quotes Abraham, Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justified the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Grace doesn't claim that no price has been paid. Charis merely points out who makes the payment. You know, sometimes, sometimes you will hear people... Um, sneer about cheap grace. Oh, you're a proponent of cheap grace. That's ridiculous. That is an oxymoron. There is no such thing as cheap grace. It is expensive and free, never cheap. Grace is unbelievably expensive for Jesus, the Lamb of God. It required His very life. Grace is also completely free for humans. Anyone who ever tells you that somebody needs to do something in order to be a Christian, they are taking from Jesus' column, His ergon, His works, and they're placing those on us instead of grace. Remember, it is by faith alone, in Jesus alone, through God's grace alone, that humans become children of God, Christians, Christ ones. And that's why charis achieves its final and lasting meaning here in the New Testament. Grace is the unearned favor of God. Amen? All right, let's read verses 14 and 17. Read that again. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Parenthetical note here, John testified concerning Him and exclaimed, this is the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because He existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from His fullness, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is all by the grace Jesus brings. Jesus is higher than John the baptizer. He has always been God the Son. 
And yet he condescends to offer grace upon grace. This, this very logos, God the Son brings us light. We no longer live in Hades awaiting God's dawn. We are made into children of God all through the haris upon haris that comes in Jesus. And this is not earned at all. Look, verse 17. It references Moses' law. That law was granted so that people would know that there is no way that we can keep God's holy standard. The standard has been met for us in Jesus alone. He kept truth completely. He alone was without sin. The law showed us our need. Jesus meets that need. For the past 200 years, preachers have on occasion taken time to make sure that Christians understand important biblical words. Um, in the 19th century, C.I. Schofield taught just down the road here in Dallas. He taught a powerful series uh, about words from the Bible. In fact, those, it's been in print ever since. Remarkable study. In the 20th century, William Barclay and, and Dwight Pentecost continued the tradition. Look, what you and I are doing is merely commentary on the great work of our forebears. That's why I quoted Dr. Pentecost in our notes. Look in your notes. Great quote here from Dr. P. He says, grace refers to the central character of God and tells us what kind of God he is. Grace comes to an individual because of what the one gracing is within himself. God is kindly disposed to the sinner. This is, this is the quality of being of our God. All that comes to us from a God of grace comes to us because he is a God of grace, close quote. Jesus brings grace upon grace because that's what he is. What, what, is, what is this? What is this, everybody? It's a marshmallow, right? It's just a, it's a marshmallow. Now, what happens if I warm this guy up with a nice golden brown outside? No burning. You burn people. I don't understand you. Anyway, a uh, nice perfect golden brown. And then I put it in between chocolate and graham crackers, and then I, what, what's, what's going to squish out? What's going to ooze out? Yeah, marshmallow goo. Awesome, delicious marshmallow goo is going to ooze out, right? So in the same way, folks, Jesus is grace. So when he gets heated up in the fire of his earthly ministry, what, what comes out of him? Grace, right? Here you go. There, you just fight over there. Oh, nice catch. All right, now we all know what you're thinking in your, uh, in your imitation of a child eating s'mores. Right now, after all that work, you're thinking, so what? Grace is important. Blah, 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 blah. What does this change for me? Right? What about me? Great question. Thank you for asking some more, kid. There are four things that radically change in your life when you understand grace. First, you can receive God's grace. Remember verse 12 in our text? Look again. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. Those who believe in Jesus receive his grace and they are changed into children of God. It doesn't matter what kind of family you had here on earth. Your human parentage makes no difference. If you trust Jesus, you are part of the royal family. Look, look here's how Paul uh, comments on that. Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Is that amazing? He wrote that at a time of primogeniture. When, when, the, when the oldest son got more than everybody else, and he says, the way he writes, you, you're like an oldest son, doesn't matter, male, female, whatever you, you are an heir of God. How cool is that? And, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying Aramaic, Daddy, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, 
but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. An heir. Isn't that remarkable? Hallelujah. Because of God's grace, I can receive grace and become an heir in his family. There's a second thing you can do. You can glorify God by standing firm in grace. Read with me. Romans chapter 5. You take the underlying text. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also have obtained access through Him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast only in Jesus only in grace. We have access to the throne of God, not because of us, but because of grace. And in that we stand. We do not waver, no pride, no functional legalism. Look, if you've ever needed a job, ever been without work and needed a job, you know the incredible feeling when you get that call that says, we would love to have you here. Welcome aboard. It's an awesome feeling, and it's a great feeling. And if you're a Christian, What'd you do? You likely praised God for providing. You, you knew this blessing was only because of God's grace to you. That was your attitude. But after a while, what happens in our hearts? We begin to notice the often very real problems with our workplace, right? We begin to notice everything that's not right about it. And that's not all bad, but then we begin to do a lot of comparison, right? Especially of all the idiots around whom we work. Yeah? This is true, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, then, and then we begin to think, we begin to get this attitude of, boy, they are so lucky to have me. This place would be horrible without me, right? Now, that is poison to your career, folks. Some of you know that. And in the same way, it is poison to our souls when we begin to think of our eternal life as founded on anything other than grace. And yet we do it, don't we? Even in Christian relationships, in our church, we start keeping records of all the things that are wrong, right? We start, we start comparing ourselves to other Christians. We keep looking until we find ones that are worse than we are. We, we, we imagine how lucky God is to have somebody like us in His family. This is our nature. And that's why we must regularly stop ourselves and make sure we are standing in grace. We've got to remember that in ourselves we bring nothing to the table. We are depraved totally, and without God's grace in Jesus, we are lost. Again, Dr. Pentecost is, is brilliant on this. Look what he says. Grace cannot be compromised. Our salvation is of faith, that it might be only of grace, to the end that it might be sure. This is really brilliant. Think this through. If God covenanted to do 99% of the work of salvation, if you did 1%, you would have no certainty that you had accomplished your part of the bargain so God could do his 99%. Close quote. Swiss theologian Karl Barth chimes in as well. Look what he says. The distance between God and humans is overcome only by God's grace. In awe, we gratefully receive it as such and never let reception become demanded grasping. We are compelled to receive God's grace with thanksgiving. Close quote. This is where we must stand in the amazing grace of God. Galatians 5 is really pointed about this. Read with me, verse 4 of Galatians 5, all together. You who were trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Because of Jesus, 
A person can receive God's grace. A person can stand in that grace and never fall from it. And, and we can glorify God by sharing grace. Patience, uh, our author mentioned earlier. Patience is great. It's wonderful to share. So is, so is mercy. So is love. All those things are great. But nothing is as important as sharing grace. Grace, the unearned favor of God, is the greatest force for positive change in the world. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. You know what this is like, some of you do. When, when, when you share the good news of God's unmerited favor through Jesus, some people, they, they, understand, they receive that grace, they believe. And and as they believe, that extends from them to more people and more people and more people. And as it does so, it, it extends the thankfulness that should be expressed to God's awesomeness. This is our motive behind everything we do. This, this must be why we send Christmas cards, why we answer the door when a neighbor's in need, why we call on our relatives. It, we, we glorify God by showing our gratitude in everything we do, inviting other people to receive real haris as well. For example... A friend of mine wrote me this week, and he shared a homework assignment that was submitted by his 10th grade daughter. 10th grade girl, public school, and she was told to write an essay that used all of this week's vocabulary words. Pretty good assignment. And, uh, and this is what she wrote. He sent me a copy of this. By the way, the vocabulary words are in red. Look at what she wrote. She said, humans are evil and sinful, yet God sent his one and only son to intercede on our behalf. His son Jesus was perfect and sinless, but many had rancor against him. Jesus is the reparation for all who have sinned. Even though he wasn't the perpetrator, the infamous Romans didn't spare him indignity. Instead of incarcerating him, they curtailed his life. I like that one. That's pretty clever use there. Discriminating him against the other criminals, the Romans put him to death on a cross, rising from the dead. Three days later, Jesus proved he was and is God. Our sins are no longer inalienable. Now with faith in Christ, we have the ability to spend eternity in heaven with Him. Sin is rampant and malign, so Jesus Christ laid down His life for sinners like you and me. His love for us is not a smattering. It is infinite and eternal. Can you give her a hand? She watches this stuff. <clears throat> That's great. You and I can do that too. We, we can naturally just gratefully share grace like that in our everyday lives. We, we also can come boldly to the throne of grace. That's our fourth and final response. Look up here. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, um, and by the way, the context in Hebrews 4 is about how great and, and gracious Jesus is. Okay? Therefore, because Jesus is so great and gracious, let us approach the throne of grace with what, everybody? Boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Mercy, by the way, is not getting punishment you do deserve. Grace is receiving blessings you do not deserve. Because of God's mercy and grace in Jesus, nothing should ever keep a Christian from the throne of grace. The Stoics were wrong. You do not have to offer God anything. Tell me, do your kids and grandkids need to bring a gift to you in order to enter the family room? Is that, a, is that a rule at your home? You're not allowed in unless you bring a gift. No, of course not. In the same way, you who are made children of God the Father, by His grace, you bring nothing to the Father. Charles Wesley, uh, this guy you're about to see, he had some odd holes in his theology, but one thing I appreciate about Wesley, he was very honest about his growth. One of his biggest problems was a misunderstanding of grace. 
Wesley had taught for years a kind of false uh, stoic kind of grace. It was one that demanded humans do works. But late in his life, Charles Wesley finally understood grace. And when he understood grace, he changed. And he recorded that change in a remarkable poem. Remarkable poem. Here's what he wrote. Wesley said he, talking about Jesus, left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. It's not only for some. It's not only for God's and God. It's for all. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Close quote. When we grasp what grace is, we boldly come to the throne of our God. All God's people said, Amen. In 1743... There was a young British uh, guy, uh, John was his name, he was on his way to visit friends when a Royal Navy press gang cornered him. And he was, if you don't know what press gangs were, they forced you into servitude in His Majesty's Navy. He was forced onto the HMS Hark. Um, later, he, as often happened with impressed sailors, he tried to desert. He was caught. You know what the captain did? He tied him to the grating, had him stripped, and gave him eight dozen lashes. When John recovered, which took a while, he really thought long and hard about murdering that captain. Instead, he put in a, a transfer request. There, the the Harch was, uh, was a huge Royal Navy transport ship. They, they would uh, do convoy duty. Uh, the Pegasus was one of the ships they were escorting, and the Pegasus was short on sailors. And so he put in for a transfer. The captain was happy to get rid of John. He let him go to the Pegasus. The captain of the Pegasus didn't like John either. John didn't get along well with captains. Um, in fact, the captain of the Pegasus so disliked John that he marooned him in West Africa. He sold him into slavery to, to Princess Peye, who was, a, who was a queen of the Sherbro people. He was a slave in her court, so to speak. And he, his life was wretched as a slave. In fact, for her entertainment, Peye would make him eat food that had been thrown onto the floor. Wonderfully, John was rescued by a friend of his father's. A friend of his father's traced the whole thing down, came to West Africa, freed him, John went back to sea, and then, get this, surprising but not surprising twist, he went back to sea and he became the very things he hated. John didn't get along well with captains. He didn't like sea captains. He became one, became a merchant captain. John hated being a slave. He became a slave trader. That's what he did. And I think that brings up a really interesting point. Without the intervention of God's grace, hurting people almost always continue a cycle of hurting people. It's what we do. God's grace changes that, and it did for John through a series of really shocking events, including a terrible storm at sea. John came face to face with the biblical concept of grace. So he began to read Scripture, and he talked with Christians, and he realized that his ugly sin could not keep him from God's grace. And so John trusted Jesus alone as his Savior. He became a pastor, actually. And, uh, and, and he became a serious fighter against the slave trade. In fact, John became 
so engrossed in the life of the Christian that he wrote some really beautiful hymns. Uh, His most famous one starts like this, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Friends, God's grace is enough. It is enough. You and I are just as sinful as John Newton. We are just as much in need as he. And God has provided for us. He has provided haris for us in Jesus, just as he did for John Newton. Let's stand and sing about that haris. Let's sing about grace together. Almighty God, we thank you, we praise you for grace, for charis, and we want to pray for all those people whom you love and whom we know and love who have never received your grace. Please, please, open their eyes. Charles Wesley really begin to understand grace. In fact, he, he wrote that, that beautiful piece, And Can It Be? And in that, he, uh, he referred all the way back to the early meaning of Kauris. He said, uh, 
Thine eye diffused a quickening gray. I woke, my dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my sins set free, for oh my God, grace found out me. Friend, if you have never received grace, the real meaning of grace, the unmerited favor of God that comes through faith in Jesus, do so right now. Trust Jesus as Savior. And Father, I pray for all of us who are believers in Jesus, so, so many people with whom we get to grow. And Lord, we don't, we don't stand particularly well in grace. We, we slip and slide between licentiousness on one hand and functional legalism on the other. And I pray we can be disciplined in grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.